Section 19 of Lovecraft's Influences and Favorites. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Willows by Algernon Blackwood, Part 3. At length, after a long pause, he began to talk. Queer thing, he added, in a hurried sort of voice, as though he wanted to say something and get it over. Queer thing, I mean, about that otter last night. I had expected something so totally different that he caught me with surprise, and I looked up sharply. Shows how lonely this place is. Otters are awfully shy things. I don't mean that, of course, he interrupted. I mean, do you think... Did you think it was really an otter? What else, in the name of heaven, what else? You know, I saw it before you did, and at first it seemed so much bigger than an otter. The sunset, as you looked upstream, magnified it or something, I replied. He looked at me absently a moment, as though his mind were busy with other thoughts. It had such extraordinary yellow eyes, he went on half to himself. That was the sun, too, I laughed, a trifle boisterously. I suppose you'll wonder next if that fellow in the boat... I suddenly decided not to finish the sentence. He was in the act again of listening, turning his head to the wind, and something in the expression of his face made me halt. The subject dropped, and we went on with our caulking. Apparently he had not noticed my unfinished sentence. Five minutes later, however, he looked at me across the canoe, the smoking pitch in his hand, his face exceedingly grave. I did rather wonder, if you want to know, he said slowly, what that thing in the boat was. I remember thinking at the time it was not a man. The whole business seemed to rise quite suddenly out of the water. I laughed again boisterously in his face, but this time there was impatience and a strain of anger too in my feeling. Look here now, I cried. This place is quite queer enough without going out of our way to imagine things. That boat was an ordinary boat, and the man in it was an ordinary man, and they were both going downstream as fast as they could lick, and that otter was an otter, so don't let's play the fool about it. He looked steadily at me with the same grave expression. He was not in the least annoyed. I took courage from his silence. And for heaven's sake, I went on, don't keep pretending you hear things, because it only gives me the jumps, and there's nothing to hear but the river and this cursed old thundering wind. You fool! he answered in a low, shocked voice. You utter fool! That's just the way all victims talk, as if you didn't understand just as well as I do. He sneered with scorn in his voice, and a sort of resignation. The best thing you can do is to keep quiet and try to hold your mind as firm as possible. This feeble attempt at self-deception only makes the truth harder when you're forced to meet it. My little effort was over, and I found nothing more to say, for I knew quite well his words were true, and that I was the fool, not he. Up to a certain stage in the adventure, he kept ahead of me easily, and I think I felt annoyed to be out of it, to be thus proved less psychic, less sensitive than himself to these extraordinary happenings and half-ignorant all the time of what was going on under my very notes. He knew from the very beginning, apparently. But at the moment, I wholly missed the point of his words about the necessity of there being a victim, and that we ourselves were destined to satisfy the want. I dropped all pretense thenceforward, 
but thenceforward likewise my fear increased steadily to the climax. But you're quite right about one thing, he added, before the subject passed, and that is that we're wiser not to talk about it, or even to think about it, because what one thinks finds expressions in words, and what one says happens. That afternoon, while the canoe dried and hardened, we spent trying to fish, testing the leak, collecting wood, and watching the enormous flood of rising water. Masses of driftwood swept near our shores sometimes, and we fished for them with long willow branches. The island grew perceptibly smaller as the banks were torn away with great gulps and splashes. The weather kept brilliantly fine till about four o'clock, and then for the first time in three days the wind showed signs of abating. Clouds began to gather in the southwest, spreading thence slowly over the sky. This lessening of the wind came as a great relief, for the incessant roaring, banging, and thundering had irritated our nerves. Yet the silence that came about five o'clock, with its sudden cessation, was in a manner quite as oppressive. The booming of the river had everything in its own way then. It filled the air with deep murmurs, more musical than the wind noises, but infinitely more monotonous. The wind held many notes, rising, falling, always beating out some sort of great elemental tune, whereas the river's song lay between three notes at most, dull pedal notes, that held a lugubrious quality foreign to the wind, and somehow seemed to me, in my then nervous state, to sound wonderfully well the music of doom. It was extraordinary, too, how the withdrawal suddenly of bright sunlight took everything out of the landscape that made for cheerfulness, and since this particular landscape had already managed to convey the suggestion of something sinister, the change, of course, was all the more unwelcome and noticeable. For me, I know, the darkening outlook became distinctly more alarming, and I found myself more than once calculating how soon after sunset the full moon would get up in the east, and whether the gathering clouds would greatly interfere with her lighting of the little island. With this general hush of the wind, though it still indulged in occasional brief gusts, the river seemed to grow blacker, the willows to stand more densely together. The latter, too, kept up a sort of independent movement of their own, rustling among themselves when no wind stirred, and shaking oddly from the roots upward. When common objects, in this way, become charged with the suggestion of horror, they stimulate the imagination far more than things of unusual appearance. And these bushes, crowding huddled about us, assumed for me in the darkness a bizarre grotesquerie of appearance that lent to them, somehow, the aspect of purposeful and living creatures. Their very ordinariness, I felt, masked what was malignant and hostile to us. The forces of the region drew near with the coming of night. They were focusing upon our island, and more particularly upon ourselves. For thus somehow, in the terms of the imagination, did my really indescribable sensations in this extraordinary place present themselves. I had slept a good deal in the early afternoon, and had thus recovered somewhat from the exhaustion of a disturbed night, but this only served apparently to render me more susceptible than before to the obsessing spell of the haunting. I fought against it, laughing at my feelings as absurd and childish, with very obvious physiological explanations. Yet in spite of every effort, they gained in strength upon me so that I dreaded the night, as a child lost in a forest must dread the approach of darkness. The canoe we had carefully covered with a waterproof sheet during the day, and the one remaining paddle 
had been securely tied by the Swede to the base of a tree, lest the wind should rob us of that, too. From five o'clock onward, I busied myself with a stew-pot and preparations for dinner, it being my turn to cook that night. We had potatoes, onions, bits of bacon fat to add flavor, and a general thick residue from former stews at the bottom of the pot. With black bread broken up into it, the result was most excellent, and it was followed by a stew of plums with sugar and a brew of strong tea with dried milk. A good pile of wood lay close at hand, and the absence of wind made my duties easy. My companion sat lazily watching me, dividing his attentions between cleaning his pipe and giving useless advice, an admitted privilege of the off-duty man. He had been very quiet all the afternoon, engaged in recocking the canoe, strengthening the tent ropes, and fishing for driftwood while I slept. No more talk about undesirable things had passed between us, and I think his only remarks had to do with the gradual destruction of the island, which he declared was not fully a third smaller than when we first landed. The pot had just began to bubble, when I heard his voice calling to me from the bank, where he had wandered away without my noticing. I ran up. Come and listen, he said, and see what you make of it. He held his hand cupwise to his ear, as so often before. Now do you hear anything? he asked, watching me curiously. We stood there, listening attentively together. At first I heard only the deep note of the water and the hissings rising from its turbulent surface. The willows for once were motionless and silent. Then a sound began to reach my ears faintly, a peculiar sound, something like the humming of a distant gong. It seemed to come across to us in the darkness from the waste of swamps and willows opposite. It was repeated at regular intervals, but it was certainly neither the sound of a bell nor the hooting of a distant steamer. I can liken it to nothing so much as to the sound of an immense gong, suspended far up in the sky, repeating incessantly its muffled metallic note, soft and musical, as it was repeatedly struck. My heart quickened as I listened. I've heard it all day, said my companion. While you slept this afternoon, it came all round the island. I hunted it down, but could never get near enough to see, to localize it correctly. Sometimes it was overhead, and sometimes it seemed under the water. Once or twice, too, I could have sworn it was not outside at all, but within myself, you know, the way a sound in the fourth dimension is supposed to come. I was too much puzzled to pay much attention to his words. I listened carefully, striving to associate it with any known familiar sound I could think of, but without success. It changed in the direction, too, coming nearer and then sinking utterly away into remote distance. I cannot say that it was ominous in quality, because to me it seemed distinctly musical, yet I must admit it set going a distressing feeling that made me wish I had never heard it. The wind blowing in those sand funnels, I said, determined to find an explanation. Or the bushes rubbing together after the storm, perhaps. It comes off the whole swamp, my friend answered. It comes from everywhere at once. He ignored my explanations. It comes from the willow bushes somehow. But now that the wind has dropped, I objected, the willows can hardly make a noise by themselves, can they? His answer frightened me, first, because I had dreaded it, and secondly, because I knew intuitively it was true. It is because the wind has dropped we now hear it. It was drowned before. It is the cry, I believe, of the... 
I dashed back to my fire, warned by the sound of bubbling that the stew was in danger, but determined at the same time to escape further conversation. I was resolute, if possible, to avoid the exchanging of views. I dreaded, too, that he would begin about the gods, or the elemental forces, or something else disquieting, and I wanted to keep myself well in hand for what might happen later. There was another night to be faced before we escaped from this distressing place, and there was no knowing yet what it might bring forth. Come and cut up the bread for the pot, I called to him, vigorously stirring the appetizing mixture. The stew pot held sanity for us both, and the thought made me laugh. He came over slowly and took the provision sack from the tree, fumbling in its mysterious depths, and then emptying the entire contents upon the ground sheet at his feet. Hurry up, I cried. It's boiling. The Swede burst out into a roar of laughter that startled me. It was forced laughter, not artificial exactly, but mirthless. There's nothing here, he shouted, holding his sides. Bread, I mean. It's gone. There is no bread. They've taken it. I dropped the long spoon and ran up. Everything the sack had contained lay upon the ground sheet, but there was no loaf. The whole dead weight of my growing fear fell upon me and shook me. Then I burst out laughing, too. It was the only thing to do, and the sound of my laughter also made me understand his. The stain of psychical pressure caused it, this explosion of unnatural laughter in both of us. It was an effort of repressed forces to seek relief. It was a temporary safety valve, and with both of us it ceased quite suddenly. How criminally stupid of me, I cried, still determined to be consistent and find an explanation. I cleaned and forgot to buy a loaf at Pressburg. That chattering woman put everything out of my head, and I must have left it lying on the counter, or— The oatmeal, too, is much less than it was this morning, the Swede interrupted. Why in the world need he draw attention to it? I thought angrily. There's enough for tomorrow, I said, stirring vigorously, and we can get lots more at Camorn or Gran. In twenty-four hours we shall be miles from here. I hope so, to God! he muttered, putting the things back into the sack. Unless we're claimed first as victims for the sacrifice, he said with a foolish laugh. He dragged the sack into the tent for safety's sake, I suppose, and I heard him mumbling to himself, but so indistinctly that it seemed quite natural for me to ignore his words. Our meal was beyond question a gloomy one, and we ate it almost in silence, avoiding one another's eyes and keeping the fire bright. Then we washed up and prepared for the night, and, once smoking, our minds unoccupied with any definite duties, the apprehension that I had felt all day long became more and more acute. It was not then active fear, I think, but the very vagueness of its origin distressed me far more than if I had been able to tick it and face it squarely. The curious sound I have likened to the note of a gong became now almost incessant and filled the stillness of the night with a faint, continuous ringing, rather than a series of distinct notes. At one time it was behind, at another time in front of us. Sometimes I fancied it came from the bushes on our left, and then again from the clumps on our right. More often it hovered directly overhead like the whirring of wings. It was really everywhere at once, behind, in front, at our sides and over our heads, completely surrounding us. The noise really defies description, but nothing within my knowledge is like that ceaseless muffled humming rising off the deserted world of swamps and willows. 
we sat smoking in comparative silence, the strain growing every minute greater. The worst feature of the situation seemed to me that we did not know what to expect, and could therefore make no sort of preparation by way of defense. We could anticipate nothing. My explanations, made in the sunshine, moreover, now came to haunt me with their foolish and wholly unsatisfactory nature, and it was more and more clear to us that some kind of plain talk with my companion was inevitable, whether I liked it or not. After all, we had to spend the night together and to sleep in the same tent side by side. I saw that I could not get along much longer without the support of his mind, and for that, of course, plain talk was imperative. As long as possible, however, I postponed this little climax, and tried to ignore or laugh at the occasional sentences he flung into the emptiness. Some of these sentences, moreover, were confoundedly disquieting to me, coming as they did to corroborate much that I felt myself, corroboration, too, which made it so much more convincing from a totally different point of view. He composed such curious sentences and hurled them at me in such an inconsequential sort of way as though his main line of thought was secret to himself, and these fragments were mere bits he found it impossible to digest. He got rid of them by uttering them. Speech relieved him. It was like being sick. There are things about us, I'm sure, that make for disorder, disintegration, destruction, our destruction, he said once, while the fire blazed between us. We've strayed out of a safe line somewhere. And at another time, when the gong sounds had come nearer, ringing much louder than before and directly over our heads, he said, as though talking to himself, I don't think a gramophone would show any record of that. The sound doesn't come to me by the ears at all. The vibrations reach me in another manner altogether, and seem to be within me, which is precisely how a fourth-dimensional sound might be supposed to make itself heard. I purposely made no reply to this, but I sat up a little closer to the fire and peered about me into the darkness. The clouds were massed all over the sky, and no trace of moonlight came through. Very still, too, everything was, so that the river and the frogs had things all their own way. It has that about it, he went on which is utterly out of common experience. It is unknown. Only one thing describes it, really. It is a non-human sound. I mean a sound outside humanity. Having rid himself of this indigestible morsel, he lay quiet for a time, but he had had so admirably expressed my own feeling that it was a relief to have the thought out, and to have confined it by the limitation of words from dangerous wandering to and fro in the mind. The solitude of that Danube camping-place, can I ever forget it. The feeling of being utterly alone on an empty planet. My thoughts ran incessantly upon cities and the haunts of men. I would have given my soul, as the saying is, for the feel of those Bavarian villages we had passed through by the score, for the normal, human commonplaces, peasants drinking beer, tables beneath the trees, hot sunshine and a ruined castle on the rocks behind the red roof church. Even the tourists would have been welcome. Yet what I felt of dread was no ordinary ghostly fear. It was infinitely greater, stranger, and seemed to arise from some dim ancestral sense of terror more profoundly disturbing than anything I had known or dreamed of. We had strayed, as the Swede put it, into some region or some set of conditions where the risks were great, yet unintelligible to us, where the frontiers 
of some unknown world lay close about us. It was a spot held by the dwellers in some outer space, a sort of peephole whence they could spy upon the earth themselves unseen, a point where the veil between had worn a little thin. As the final result of too long a sojourn here, we should be carried over the border and deprived of what we called our lives, yet by mental, not physical processes. In that sense, as he said, we should be victims of our adventure, a sacrifice. It took us in different fashion, each according to the measure of his sensitiveness and powers of resistance. I translated it vaguely into a personification of the mightily disturbed elements, investing them with the horror of a deliberate and malefic purpose, resentful of our audacious intrusion into their breeding place, whereas my friend threw it into the unoriginal form at first of a trespass on some ancient shrine, some place where the old gods still held sway, where the emotional forces of former worshippers still clung, and the ancestral portion of him yielded to the old pagan spell. At any rate, here was a place unpolluted by men, kept clean by the winds from coarsening human influences, a place where spiritual agencies were within reach and aggressive. Never beyond or since have I been so attacked by indescribable suggestions of a beyond region, of another scheme of life, another revelation not parallel to the human. And in the end, our minds would succumb under the weight of the awful spell, and we should be drawn across the frontier into their world. Small things testified to the amazing influence of the place, and now in the silence round the fire they allowed themselves to be noted by the mind. The very atmosphere had proved itself a magnifying medium to distort every indication. The otter roiling in the current, the hurrying boatmen making signs, the shifting willows, one and all had been robbed of its natural character and revealed in something of its other aspect as it existed across the border to that other region. And this changed aspect I felt now not merely to me, but to the race. The whole experience whose verge we touched was unknown to humanity at all. It was a new order of experience, and in the true sense of the word, unearthly. It's the deliberate, calculating purpose that reduces one's courage to zero, the Swede said suddenly, as if he had been actually following my thoughts. Otherwise, imagination might count for much. But the paddle, the canoe, the lessening food. Haven't I explained all that once? I interrupted viciously. You have, he answered dryly. You have indeed. He made other remarks, too, as usual, about what he called the plain determination to provide a victim. But having now arranged my thoughts better, I recognized that this was simply the cry of his frightened soul against the knowledge that he was being attacked in a vital part, and that he would be somehow taken or destroyed. The situation called for a courage and calmness of reasoning that neither of us could compass, and I have never before been so clearly conscious of two persons in me, the one that explained everything, and the other that laughed at such foolish explanations, yet was horribly afraid. Meanwhile, in the pitchy night the fire died down, and the woodpile grew small. Neither of us moved to replenish the stock, and the darkness consequently came up very close to our faces. A few feet beyond the circle of firelight, it was inky black. Occasionally a stray puff of wind set the willows shivering about us. But apart from this not very welcome sound, 
a deep and depressing silence reigned, broken only by the gurgling of the river and the humming in the air overhead. We both missed, I think, the shouting company of the winds. At length, at a moment when a stray puff prolonged itself as though the wind were about to rise again, I reached the point for me of saturation, the point where it was absolutely necessary to find relief in plain speech or else to betray myself by some hysterical extravagance that must have been far worse in its effect upon both of us. I kicked the fire into a blaze and turned to my companion abruptly. He looked up with a start. I can't disguise it any longer, I said. I don't like this place and the darkness and the noises and the awful feelings I get. There's something here that beats me utterly. I'm in a blue funk, and that's the plain truth. If the other shore was different, I swear I'd be inclined to swim for it. The Swede's face turned very white beneath the deep tan of sun and wind. He stared straight at me and answered quietly, but his voice betrayed his huge excitement by its unnatural calmness. For the moment, at any rate, he was the strong man of the two. He was more phlegmatic, for one thing. It's not a physical condition we can escape from by running away, he replied, in the tone of a doctor diagnosing some grave disease. We must sit tight and wait. There are forces close here that could kill a herd of elephants in a second as easily as you or I could squash a fly. Our only chance is to keep perfectly still. Our insignificance, perhaps, may save us. I put a dozen questions into my expression of face, but found no words. It was precisely like listening to an accurate description of a disease whose symptoms had puzzled me. I mean that, so far, although aware of our disturbing presence, they have not found us, not located us, as the Americans say, he went on. They're blundering about like men hunting for a leak of gas. The paddle and canoe and provisions prove that. I think they feel us, but cannot actually see us. We must keep our minds quiet. It's our minds they feel. We must control our thoughts, or it's all up with us. Death, you mean? I stammered, icy with the horror of his suggestion. Worse by far, he said. Death, according to one's belief, means either annihilation or release from the limitation of the senses, but involves no change of character. You don't suddenly alter just because the body's gone. But this means a radical alteration, a complete change, a horrible loss of oneself by substitution far worse than death, and not even annihilation. We happen to have camped in a spot where their region touches ours, where the veil between is worn thin. Horrors! He was using my very own phrase, my actual words. So that they are aware of our being in their neighborhood. But who are aware, I asked. I forgot the shaking of the willows in the windless calm, the humming overhead, everything except that I was waiting for an answer that I dreaded more than I can possibly explain. He lowered his voice at once to reply, leaning forward a little over the fire. An indefinable change in his face that made me avoid his eyes and look down upon the ground. All my life, he said, I have been strangely, vividly conscious of another region, not far removed from our own world in one sense, yet wholly different in kind, where great things go on unceasingly, where immense and terrible personalities hurry by, intent on vast purposes compared to which earthly affairs, the rise and fall of nations, the destinies of empires, the fate of armies and continents, are all as dust in the balance, vast purposes, I mean, that deal directly with the soul 
and not indirectly with more expressions of the soul. I suggest just now, I began, seeking to stop him, feeling as though I was face to face with a madman, but he instantly overbore me with his torrent that had to come. You think, he said, it is the spirit of the elements, and I thought perhaps it was the old gods, but I tell you now it is neither. These would be comprehensible entities, for they have relations with men, depending upon them for worship or sacrifice, whereas these beings who are now about us have absolutely nothing to do with mankind, and it is mere chance that their space happens just at this spot to touch our own. The mere conception, which his words somehow made so convincing as I listened to them there in the dark stillness of that lonely island, set me shaking a little all over. I found it impossible to control my movements. And what do you propose? I began again. A sacrifice. A victim might save us by distracting them until we could get away, he went on, just as the wolves stopped to devour the dogs and give the sleigh another start. But I see no chance of any other victim now. I stared blankly at him. The gleam in his eyes was dreadful. Presently he continued. End of The Willows, Part 3